the USL show, also known as The View for Soccer. I gave a very pro wrestling heel turn, I'm sorry you were offended apology. The US military discussing what a Naruto run is for the Area 51 raid. I feel angry. Welcome to the USL show. We are brought to you by the Beautiful Game Network and sponsored by Roughneck Scarves. Special guest, Devin Kerr, USL commentator, uh, commentator of a lot of other things as well, joining us today. And I'm really excited to talk tactics and everything. Devin, how are you doing today, man? I'm good. I'm good. It's been uh, it's been a long time coming. I admire you guys from afar, and we obviously have shared passion and interests, and, and it's great to finally have the opportunity to... Uh, to be on your platform. I really, really a big fan. And I think you guys do great things for this league. Thanks, man. Feelings very mutual. Um, been hearing nothing but good about you and in, in all the study you do. Um, I know my favorite tweet of yours this year, you know, I'm a St. Louis guy. And so you did that tactical breakdown of what St. Louis does when they lose the ball and, and stay high and all the things they do with the fullbacks. I really, really enjoyed that. So I was, I was hoping you'd uh, maybe get some more of those out this year, but it seems like it takes a long time. No, you know what it is? It's I appreciate that first and foremost. We get things like that out there. It all depends on kind of the storylines that are fed in our direction, mm. things that we want to take. I'll be doing one for the final. Um, you know, it's also got to change it up too. you know, people you do a team every single week. People are going to expect you to do a team yeah. every single week. So we were actually for the Indy Louisville game this past weekend. Mike Watts and I were on the road feed. So for the road feed. People that aren't familiar, the home feed is always ESPN+. Plus. That's the national broadcast. Some teams do their own road broadcast. Phoenix does a road broadcast. Louisville does a road broadcast. And so hmm. we actually did a breakdown tactically of the battle between Tyler Pasher and Speedy Williams in the middle of the field, what that space was going to look like, because he basically ate them alive in yeah. three games this year. Um, obviously, the, the last one, Louisville, came out on top, but Tyler Pasher scored in all three. So we gave an idea of what was this going to look like the first time Louisville played in a three back this time they were in a four speedy Williams was only there for one of them. So that's, that's the fun stuff that I really like to dig my head into. Uh, again, sometimes we just don't have the luxury of doing so. Mm-hmm. Well, let's dig into that. I want to hear a little bit more Tyler Pasher with that incredible uh, finish in the game before. Um, tell me a little bit more that maybe all of us didn't get to hear some of that breakdown between him and uh, speedy. Absolutely. So I think it's really easy for people to look at India 11 and go, you know, they play a three, four, three, they play a three, five, two. The way that they stack the formation is interesting because it gives them a lot of freedom. So it's always three at the back. Tyler Gibson is included into one of those midfielders. He's their iron man. He's there every single day. He controls everything in the middle of the field, but he always sits deep. Mm -hmm. So we'll use their last 11 as the precursor for what I'm talking about, Kenny Walker and Drew Connor. So those two are going to play as their attacking midfielders. I use that term lightly because if you're just joining the league, Kenny Walker and Drew Connor, they're not out and out number 10s. Mm-hmm. These are guys that are primarily eights that need to sit alongside a playmaker or alongside a defensive midfielder like Tyler Gibson that can help control the middle. Indy has that luxury because they have great wing play. You have Ioze on the left and, of course, Dane Kelly and Tyler Pasher up top. What Tyler Pasher does, though, is he actually drops down into a false nine position and is really given the freedom to roam anywhere he wants. Why? 
because Dan Kelly is going to play the focal point up top. What they're looking to do is play balls through the middle and then progress into the final third quite rapidly so that the ball is out in front of Dane Kelly. Mm-hmm. They were able to shut that down, Lou City. So the, a lot of the play, if you go back and watch, when they were playing into Dane Kelly, his back was to goal. That's not his strong suit. He's got to be up in the air, going attacking in that direction, or the ball out in front to run at people. So Tyler Pasher, when he drops down in, they're looking to play off of him. They'll allow him to turn and play quickly. Or to feed guys like Mackey King on the right or Iozzi on the left, that's where Speedy Williams comes in, where... You're asking a lot out of Niall McCabe and Magnus Rasmussen to push the attack going forward and then to step back and track Tyler Pasher. So it's a one-on-one with Speedy Williams in the middle of the field. But when Pasher pushes outside, that's where the communication has to be perfect. Mm -hmm. If Speedy goes, which he will, that's where you have to expect someone in the wings like Copano on the right, or if they shift to the right, Brian Ombi on the left, to track back in. Louisville City likes to attack with two outside backs. So they'll send Jimenez and they'll send McMahon but it's calculated. They don't always send both at the same time. Tyler Pasher knows that. So if Jimenez steps up high, now you pull Pasher into the left back. Paco Craig shifts out. Where's Speedy Williams' responsibility? Does he go with the runner? Does he step back in? And that's why Loose City was so successful. Yes, Pasher got them once, but you have to understand that they are a patient team who will wait against anyone. And I'll give them the one goal because just this team is there for a reason. They are successful in so many different ways, and all they needed was time to figure out. And every single game they played this year on the latter portion of the season, take the final 15 matches, they are a second-half team. Mm-hmm. It's John Hackworth being an individual brilliance with his supporting staff, of course, at Danny Cruz and those guys, and they will find out where you're trying to go ahead of time. And as the game evolves on, their maturation always trumps yours. Yeah, and I want to dig into that a little more. Uh, you gave us a great primer on Indy and what they did. Um, but, you know, I agree with you. Louisville has been extremely good in the second half. I thought no team was going to beat Pittsburgh after that first half in the previous round. And Louisville, that's it just seems to be their, their, what they can do. They're veterans. They look, they figure out a team, and little by little, they, they get it done, um, as they did against Pittsburgh, as they did against Indy. Um, is it the veteran presence? Is there, what is the je ne sais quoi of Louisville, if, if you do have one, if you can figure it out? I love it. Qu'est-ce que tu veux m'en dire? Let's stay in the French. I'm there. Mon français est terrible. Yes, there's a couple things. And I actually started doing this prep for the final. Everything they preach, number one, is culture. And you get that. So let's dig into that a little bit. They have one, two. I'm doing the math. Bear with me. Three, four, five, six. They have 16 players returning from the championship team of 2018. Mm. They have 11 players from 2017, six from 2016, and two boys from 2015. Now, the two from 15 are Niall McCabe and Rasmussen. Rasmussen left for one year, but he came back. That right there does not happen in this league. You, if anyone, will know that the ability to return players in general is difficult, yet alone the vast amount of them. You take that, combine it with the fact that a lot of these guys, they do have international experience, whether it was Ranjetsing before he left. Hmm. Obviously, Sean Francis, Speedy Williams, you can tie them in there. And their ability to get reps at the international level, it gives you a different look. And that provides you more versatility where though Sean Francis isn't necessarily regularly appearing in the 11 anymore, he was a guy who was starting and regularly appearing in the 11 all year long up until Pat McMahon came back and was finally healthy. And he was playing center back. So Sean Francis playing outside back for Louisville, getting turned into a center back for Jamaica. That's the ability that they have with all these players mm-hmm. where deep into the game versus Indy 11, you can take now McCabe and people probably didn't pick this up, 
But when they went to a three-back and they made all their subs, they were throwing everything but the kitchen sink. Pat McMahon comes off. Abdujam jumps up. That's simple. That, that's, they turn in and do a 3-5-2. Let's push another guy up top. And Abdujam then becomes Luke Spencer's running mate. Mm-hmm. But then they pull Sean Tosh off. You basically pulled off your entire right side of your defense. So you've got Paco Craig and Jimenez. So who becomes your outside back when George Davis comes on? Enter Niall McCabe. That's the component that a lot of teams don't have. Where Niall McCabe, he'll play up top in the three. He'll shift inside, play alongside Speedy Williams like he did to start the game. And then he and George Davis basically became interchanging right backs. We had a guy who, to be honest, you can give him a little bit of a rest because you're pumping so many balls forward. Now McCabe can sit back and still help dictate where this play is going to go. But George Davis' fresh legs can attack. He can push inside. And then if McCabe goes, George Davis will sit. All of these guys possess the capability to play multiple positions, and we've seen it. And it's not just this year. So whether it's Jimenez playing on the left in a three-back system, Luke Spencer up top by himself, or maybe he's had the ability to come off the bench like we've seen when he was injured, and Brian Ownby is the 10. We'll get that out of the way. Mm-hmm. Brian Ownby is not a number nine up top. No. That's not what he is, but he is for this team. They find a way to play off of him. His strong suit is the ball out in front of him, and he likes to run at people. But they needed to find a way to shift things around because this is probably the one year you can say offensively that it hasn't necessarily been years past where they're pumping goals in the back. And I'm not just talking about Lancaster, but they find a way to get their integral pieces going forward like Luke Spencer, like Rasmussen in the midseason pick of Omopono. And all of those guys are brothers in arms. That's the biggest key at the end of this is they will go to war no matter what. And it doesn't matter the circumstances. Needing a goal, four minutes of added time in the championship of the Eastern Conference, guess who steps in? Hope I don't know, 93-25 or whatever it was. <laughs> and that's just the belief. And it doesn't matter what it is. As the year goes on, this team gets better. Yeah. And that's a masterclass, not only in you breaking that down, but that's a, a masterclass from uh, Hackworth, because if I'm going to be honest with you, you broke down all these things perfectly because I caught some of those things, but I didn't watch it and see what was happening. I went to the indie game and to be honest, they brought on those two subs you were talking about. Tosh came off and I thought, oh God, they're throwing the kitchen sink at him and he's just going to be able to, to counter and, and take this game and shut it down. And uh, I just thought they were done defending at that point. And and now I understand by what you said that they weren't necessarily just leaving the back open. They still had some options to defend on a counterattack. And so, I mean, that is some really good work from, again, Hackworth and you telling me how it was working. Um, but I literally, at the end of that game, I went and got a little bit of merch because I was like, I think this might be over. And uh, look what happened. Absolutely insane. Is it Indy's fault for not taking advantage of that change and scoring another goal? Because that seems to be... Uh, looking back in hindsight, that's probably what they should have tried to do rather than defend out. Maybe it's difficult. You know, that was one thing that when chatting with Martin Rennie before the match, and I agreed with him on this coming in, India had controlled almost all of their games. And that was a resounding message coming out of their camp that even in games where we were behind and, and maybe struggling to score goals, we felt like we controlled them. He actually said in his opinion, not mine, that uh, the last time, they felt like they were out of control of a match. You had to go all the way back to July 27th, and it was the 2 nothing loss on the road to Nashville where they felt like the game just wasn't going their way. Hmm. And I thought that was interesting because when you look through the results, you know, there's the, there's the draw on the road at Tampa Bay. They lose at Ottawa. A 3 nothing loss at Pittsburgh. 
But then when I remembered the games, the three nothing loss at Pittsburgh, Martin Rennie wasn't wrong because the the first two goals were brilliant strikes out of Nico Brent and Canado Forbes, and it happened in the opening forty minutes. Most of the play actually was dictated by Indy. Hmm. So going into that game against Louisville, I was like, all right, well, Indy's going to try and control this. They'll get the goal, and, and then they'll be out of here. At halftime, Mike Watts said to me, where do you see this going? And I said, I'm nervous for Louisville hmm. because the way the game is going, they have let too many opportunities escape them because they controlled the opening 45 minutes. And I said, Indy is so good that they're going to end up grabbing a goal and they'll win this game one nothing. And they were 30 seconds from doing so. Hmm. Should they have gone after another one? You could make that argument. I think it's easy to say what could have been and for you and I to play Monday morning quarterback. And we're not wrong in that sense because they did have a couple chances. Some of that's also the defensive integrity of Louisville willing to track back and, and give themselves the opportunity to go win a 3v2 where but this attack from Indy has been lackluster at best. It is the one area that this team, and it's not just my opinion, it's multiple people around the league, including Martin Rennie himself, saying that it's the one area – we need to improve on the most. I think coming in, the stat was regular season. They had only scored, I think it was they only scored three or more goals, like five or six times, something like that. Hmm. And that, that may not jump off the page to people, but when you have names like Ilya Illich, Tyler Pasher, Dane Kelly, the all-time leading USL championship scorer, that, that's got to be a cause for concern, and it was. And that came back to bite them, where maybe they don't get that second goal and ice it. But I think something you remember here is Indy fans can look and say, oh, was it a penalty? You know, was it not? Hmm. They got outplayed, bottom line. W- whether, it's, whether it's the opening half of 45 minutes, give that to Louisville. I'll give Indy 25, probably 30 minutes in the second half. And then it's all Louisville after that, and it's all Louisville in overtime. It's no different than if people want to compare it. Look at the Man City-Liverpool game yesterday. People made arguments, oh, was it handball, was it not? The better team still won. Yeah. Liverpool still outplayed Man City. Same thing here for Indy, where should they have gone after a second one? I don't know. Bottom line, at the end of the day, they were the secondary team here, and and the better team prevailed. Lose City onto another final. Yeah, I think you're onto something there. I will uh, toot my own horn in that I, I ran into Nipun Chopra, and uh, he was super nice. I never have talked to him in person, so that was cool. Uh, but he said, "What do you think?" And I thought. I said exactly what I was worried about there that, you know, Louisville's a second half team. And I just, if I'm Indy, I want more than one goal on the board at the half, just because they are, you know, I was worried about that and it got to the end of the game and I went and got my merch and I thought, well, I cursed everybody again. I, I'm wrong. And then I ended up being right. And again, I'm not tuning my own horn. Um, but, um, I just happened to be right on that one. But, um, I am interested a little bit before we move on to the next, uh, game. I, I do want to hear a little bit about the attack because I agree with you. It's weird that they have Illich, that they have Dane Kelly, um, that, you know, all their attack on Indy, but they don't score a ton of goals. I've always thought that was very strange. And I, I always kind of attributed that to maybe I like to call it the St. Louis or the Pulis effect um, that you yeah. just don't score a lot of goals because you're focusing a lot on defense or, or pressing or something like that. Um, but is Indy more of a system that you know, it's not going to score a lot of goals, but it does work. What's your opinion on that? Why don't they score those five or six goals? It's a combination of both. And here's why systematically. That's why you saw any Voltson take off mid season. And they, they left that on good terms. There's nothing bad whatsoever. Um, but he is a guy who much like Dane Kelly and, and Kelly stayed. So we can, we can make that comparison. He is a guy who likes the ball out in front of him. He wants to operate with space, and he likes to operate in transition. Both of them do. 
They want to run and gun. That's why Ine Voltsen was so and is so successful in the West Coast style that it is a bit more open. So with Indy, the other thing that they do is they overload the left side. In a typical three-back system, you won't necessarily see your center backs move forward. So let's stick with Neville Hackshop, Patty Barrett, and we met as a reference for the mm-hmm. last 11. Barrett's going to sit in the middle. We met on the right, Hackshaw on the left. The difference here for Indy is Neville Hackshaw will overcommit on the left-hand side with Ioze, <laughs> yeah. and Ioze will either A, push forward, or B, if he holds for Hackshaw, he doesn't sit in the outside back position. He'll actually tuck himself in, and they'll make this into a six-man midfield. The problem that they have is when Pasher drops in, now you've got too many bodies occupying a finite amount of space, and they don't necessarily have the ability to stretch it going forward. So you think, okay, well, why don't they pump it to Dane Kelly? The interchange of play, whether it comes from Hackshot Ioze or Kenny Walker's over there or Gibson, the buildup there isn't quick enough to then release Dane Kelly because now you have Lou City who's stepped up and they've closed down the passing lanes and they've marked more space. Mm. So now you can't play in behind. And if you do, it's going to be an isolated ball down into the corner. You don't really want Dane Kelly running away from goal towards the corner flag. That's balls you want to Ioze or Maka King. Mm-hmm. So how do you change it up? Well, it's got to be a quicker transition, which if you look at the successful points that Indy had against Louisville this season, it is if Tyler Pasher drops back in, it's a quick turn, long ball, and they're out going quickly. Or a ball from Hatchet, Ioze, Ioze up to Kelly, and they go quickly in transition. A lot of their goals were scored like that. And that's where they were at their best. Mm. So when you can't go that direction, and I like to use this phrase for teams because that's why Louisville is so successful, how do you evolve? If everybody knows going into that match that Hackshaw, Ioze, Pasher dropping in, and Kelly, if that's what it's going to go look like, I can promise you this. John Hackworth did know specific conversations. They knew exactly what they were going to do. That's okay. It breaks down. So where's the next step? Could you find a way to get Kenny Walker or Drew Connor to play a higher line? Mm. They brought Drew Connor off early for a reason. I mean, they brought him out in the 68th minute, and it wasn't that his play was poor. It was the fact that he wasn't able to get on the ball. Kenny Walker, much of the same. So now Louisville had eliminated Walker and Connor in the middle. So there's two of your central midfielders gone. Tyler Pasher drops back in, and Ioze and Hackshaw are pretty much isolated on the left. So yeah. you're looking for one long ball all the way to the right side of the field to Macca King or a long ball up to Dean Kelly. But they didn't make that transition. And they never got better as the game got on. They didn't make the proper changes. Something to think about as well. Even though Indy had successful second half and they're out one nothing, and even though Louisville get that game-tying goal, look at the changes that Hackworth and Danny Cruz, and they are constantly talking to each other, that they made immediately. Mm. Hopano scores the goal and they bring him off. Is it insult? Absolutely not. Because remember, we already talked about the fact that they had basically had two defenders on. So Lexi Swahi comes on. He goes to right back. That's not a look that they normally have. Lexi Swahi plays as a center back in a four back system. He does not play as an outside marking back in the three, but they were willing to take that chance because of the players they have. Hmm. They get the second goal. What do they do immediately? They make another change. Rasmussen scores. He comes off. Del Piccolo comes in. So you bring on fresh legs, a defensive minded midfielder, but he's paired alongside Speedy Williams and Del Piccolo can still be the pivot. So can Speedy. So you've given yourself the point where, okay, we've gone up to one. We've now stabilized the back line. We put on fresh legs and overloaded the middle of the field. But if we need someone to be a playmaker, we're not going to yell at ourselves because we took Rasmussen off because we still have Del Piccolo, Speedy, Spencer. They still have the ability to go win a game. Mm -hmm. So some of that branches away from the initial question against Indy 11's offense. 
But tactically, it was brilliant from Hackworth because they shut the offense down in every way that they knew. And even once they got the go-ahead goal, they were still worried about, okay, what if Indy scores and we have the ability to counteract it? Mm-hmm. I love it. I love that you called out the the Hackshaw thing and you gave us a little more depth because I, I saw, again, I saw that kind of happening, but I didn't know exactly what was going on. Very interesting. Do you think, last little thought here, do you think sometimes the some teams kind of fall prey to trying to play too pretty when really they just should have hoofed it up forward every t- every once in a while? Or you think they just yeah, didn't occur was- to them? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Or do you think it just didn't occur to them to, to kick it uh, to kick it long like that? Yeah, I, I think that's, to be honest, that's my biggest criticism of, well, we'll look at the Western Conference, Phoenix Rising. Mm-hmm. You look at that team who won 20 games in a row, and everybody criticized them earlier on this year because of the way that they were trying to play. Play out of the back, a bit more tiki-taka, and it got pretty, didn't it? I mean, all season <laughs> long, you saw that team get better and better. But then towards the end of the year, whether it was tiredness from their streak or they couldn't figure out what other teams were throwing at them or not throwing at them, they didn't change. What Phoenix needed to do was exactly what Indy needed to do here, was open it up a little bit. Phoenix trying to play out of the back too much. Actually, you saw it against with El Paso Locomotive in their Western final, but we'll get there in a minute, mm-hmm. where Phoenix was starting to play too much. They got too pretty. They wanted to look like Man City, or they wanted to look like Barca. They didn't need to do that. You have Solomon Asante, Adam John, Junior Flemings. I mean, the list goes on and on. Open that game up. Start knocking the long ball. And that's where we'll talk about with the Monarchs how to be successful. But if they would have been more direct, they would have had success because teams started to sit down on them and wouldn't allow them to play through the lines. That's what happened to Indy, where Lou City, by the way, their press was insane. But the counter press, the second and third look coming up, because even when the one ball got in behind, the opening 30 minutes, that, that's what you want to go watch if you want to see the defensive shape because it wasn't Hopeno going after Hackshaw and it wasn't Rasmussen challenging Tyler Gibson. It was Spencer and Openo and Rasmussen and the waves just kept coming yeah. and an attack on the defensive shape. If you get by that, you play the one ball up and then play off of each other. And again, that one ball to Kelly, could it have been a diagonal that's towards the corner? Yes, but I'm not asking you to do that playing in from midfield into the corner. We're asking you to do that mm-hmm. 20, 30 yards from your own goal so that if he is running away from net, he's still got 40, 50 yards to work with. He can turn one player and he's in. They just never did that. And unfortunately, the only player who really tried to venture out of his comfort zone was Tyler Pasher. But then again, <laughs> his comfort zone is the entire field. Yeah. So what does it really matter? <laughs> exactly, what I was, exactly what I was going to say. Um, and then, you know, Spencer, too, is they can get the ball up there. And I could not believe how long that man can hold the ball without someone getting it off of him at times. It's unbelievable. And then all he has to do is hold it for a little while and Ownby's there or someone else is there. There was always someone in an attacking position if he held the ball up just for a few seconds. So, you know, Louisville is just amazing. It was fun to watch. Indy, so much talent, and you saw what they were doing. You just described it. So enjoyable. Uh, I really enjoyed that game, and talking to you makes me like it even more. Um, but let's switch over. You were talking about how Phoenix sometimes, or some teams, will just try to play a little too pretty. Um, it's funny because El Paso is kind of known for trying to be that way, but a lot of their goals weren't scored that way, right, in, in the lead-up to this game that, that we just saw this weekend. Yeah, that was, you know, everybody kind of figured out that Jerome Kiesewetter couldn't be the guy anymore. And, and it wasn't that he wasn't capable of, but they locked him down, you know, coming into the year, Mark Lowry chatting early on, he said, I'm missing a number nine. I, I've got a little surprise coming, but I, I can't tell you right away. I said, okay, found out about it probably a week or 10 days before they announced it. And 
you know, where, where he had some ridiculous 11 goals in 12 games or 10 goals in 12 yeah. games, something like that. And so then what was the next step? Because, okay, so now you've got your big German and your goal scorer, your prototypical number nine. Who's going to then step up and do that? Could it be Omar Salgado? I actually was pretty impressed with Josue Gomez on the left side and what he was able to bring to that team. But they needed someone else to provide another dimension so that when option number one broke down, who was going to step up and be that next guy? And they just never found it. And Hmm. you play tiki-taka out of the back. I admire them for that. And I admire teams that stick to what they're great at. That's a big thing here because it's really easy to go, okay, well, we're not doing well. We got to do something else. But the great teams stick to what they're great at and then find an added dimension. And that's what I'm trying to prove here is you don't have to stop feeding the guy up top, but maybe maybe you play into him a bit more and try and go the vertical route to where the ball's not out in front of him, but maybe you're spinning off of him mm-hmm. and adding an extra dimension. And the Monarchs, what they did to El Paso was very similar to what they did to Phoenix, where they switched their system. They played in a 4-2-3-1. They're now playing a 3-5-2. But specifically, their center backs that they're using right now, Kalen Ryden, Conrad Plua, and Eric Holt, are very fast. They have the ability to change direction, and they work in tandem very well together. The other thing you have to realize is they're outside wingbacks, whether it's Noah Powder or James Moberg on the right, or Tate Schmidt, who's a fun little one to talk about on the left. They are converted attacking players playing as outside backs that are capable of playing as outside backs. Those guys have played in a four-back system as a right back or a left back, and they know what their responsibility is. Hmm. So when their attack would break down, the best way to beat that team is to go quickly in transition and try and stay on the side of the field that you're on or quick switch the other. What does that mean? If Salgado steps into Tate Schmidt, they have to play in behind him and go quickly and then start to rotate pieces on the backside. So you're asking a lot out of your outside mids, but it's really easy to execute in terms of the philosophy because mm-hmm. Real Monarchs start to push really high. They push a lot of pieces in, but they don't overcommit either. Their attacks, if you watch them, very rarely are you seeing 15, 20 passes being put together by the Monarchs. What it usually is, is it's the long ball to Martinez or Michael Chang up top, yep. and they drag two or three players with them. Jack Blake's coming. Justin Portillo is usually going to sit, but Tate Schmidt will go and support. Luke Mulholland will help out. Whoever it is, they're pulling two, three guys, and if it breaks down, then they start to play. But at that point in time, they've pulled nine, ten players into the other team's defending half, so when the other team tries to break them down and go the other way, they've already compacted the space. So where you have to get into this is, it's those two, three man, it's the quick little touch, and the separation is already being provided by the Monarchs because they're trying to track each other on the offensive side, Mm -hmm. and you quickly go the other way and counter. Then when it breaks down, that's when it gets into the one-on-one. Eventually, someone has to win the individual battle. Yeah, and and that's where the Monarchs really shine because their individual players are just so freaking good. You just named all of my favorites, to be honest. Um, But I am curious about the Sebastian Velasquez. That's where I thought you were going. I thought you were saying they found their nine and they needed to add another piece. I thought you were going straight to Seba. So um, tell us about that wrinkle. Um, Could they have used him in a way almost like like an own BB? Because I think what they wanted was a, a, a natural 10, which he can deliver on. But can he be the guy that runs off the nine and scores goals? I've seen it. I feel like he did it with the Monarchs. But is that not what they did with him? So we'll keep it apples to apples. Let's let's keep Monarchs circa Seba in 2017 and 18 when they did play in a 4-2-3-1. Mm-hmm. And he did play the 10. Depending on what the shape is for El Paso, this game, it was a bit more of a 4-2-3-1. They would also rotate into a diamond at times, and that was something that Mark Lowry kind of sort of evolved into as the season went on. 
he's better in a 4-2-3-1. Why? Mm-hmm. Because in the diamond, he's given the opportunity to, to roam a bit more. But the problem is, is when he starts to roam and he comes to the near side, he doesn't necessarily have that support when he turns and goes the other way because the diamond compacts the field a bit more and you're asking more of the outside backs. They're not going to get that out of Drew Becky. Mm-hmm. And the problem was is they lost that added dimension, even in a 4-2-3-1 in this game with James Kiffey. You know, the, the questionable calls, what have you, with the referee, they still lost a big added dimension on the attacking side out of number 15. And when he went off, you're basically just relying on Aaron Gomez. So with Josue Gomez, he's been fantastic, but Seba needs the opportunity to go left, go right, and then play off. Yeah. The problem was is when it stops, who's going to be the next one up? Yuma and Nick Ross didn't necessarily give him an added dimension. They were more focused on their defensive shape. And I understand why, because everything the Monarchs were throwing at them. But with Seba as the 10, with the Monarchs, when they ran in transition, they kept going. El Paso doesn't do that. They're actually guilty of what Phoenix is guilty of or was guilty of because they're out, is that they slow it down too often. Hmm. And you have to show different looks to these teams where when your attack becomes predictable, People figure it out. That's why it's called predictability, because they understand, okay, well, they're going to try and find Salgado or Gomez on the left or right, or pump it up to Kisavetter. And if Kisavetter can't hold up play, can Seba step in underneath? The answer is yes, he can, but he can't do it all on his own, especially with the shape that they were changing against the Monarchs, where they're sitting three, four, five guys in transition. You're asking one guy to break down five, six people, whereas in 2017, 2018, they weren't asking that. Mm-hmm. It was two, three, four guys going after five, six people. And they'll take the one or two off. But when you're asking one person to do all that, he's great, but he's not God. At least at least not on a regular basis. He's <laughs> impressive, but, <laughs> but Seba can't do everything. That's really interesting. And, and, and there's a couple wrinkles there. One is perhaps, perhaps El Paso isn't quite there with their personnel. Maybe next year they add a few pieces and they can pull off some of those things. But uh, you made the best point there, my favorite point, I should say, is... It's interesting for El Paso as a Western team to try to slow it down so often, like you said, because to me, it seems to like no successful USL team cannot use the counterattack when it's there. You know what I mean? It's just like ingrained in the USL. There's athleticism. There's less talent on the ball. Even Louisville was losing a lot of passes in the first half through the midfield because they just didn't have the accuracy of a higher level team. So it's really interesting to me, you know, props to Lowry for trying it. And I hope he's successful and he figures it out. Um, Well, granted, I mean, he got this far, so maybe he did figure it out to a certain degree. But um, yeah, I find all those things interesting with El Paso. Do you think they'll make changes next year as far as personnel to make it better or do you think they'll use the transition more uh what do you think about next year for them having the relationship that i do with mark lowry i know that he's already working i I promise (laughs) you that he is already finding a way to go get his pieces he got jerome he got seba two massive names in united states soccer that he was able to bring in now imagine what he has when he has another outside back, and I don't mean this against Drew Becky because I feel like I'm picking on him, but he's a center back, and he needs to be a center back. Imagine what he has when he's got a balanced attack where he's got a, a, a Kiffy-type player on the left-hand side where you get a counterbalance, kind of like what you saw out of Phoenix where you know they had Amadou D on the left and Dembuya on the right. You know, is not coming back for Phoenix, so what are they going to do? That's what Mark Lowry wants with El Paso Locomotive where – it's not just James Kiffey on the left and they're attacking in that way if they send an outside back because Drew Becky basically didn't attack on the right. So they need an outside back at the right back position. Center back, they're fine. You know, the injuries really hurt them there. 
Um, the Moses McKinney pickup is good. Chiro and Toko is in there. That's fine. Andrew Fox is a little flat-footed, but still, he's a squad player. He's good enough. You need to find a way to add a dimension at the outside midfield position. I don't know what Omar Salgado is. I think a lot of people have been wondering that for years. Hmm. He's a great talent, but is he a 9? Is he a 7? Is he an 11? You know, for, for everything that he has going for him, he didn't really give you that stretch that you were looking for. Three goals in 37 appearances. For an attacking player that's supposed to, you know, help provide support statistically, mm -hmm. that's not good enough. Alexi Bassetti had 28 appearances between OKC and El Paso. He still had two goals. And, and that's a guy who's probably playing as your eight. I think Alexi Pizzetti, excuse me, Bassetti morphs into a starter for them. If they can get him to be a bit more defensive-minded, playing alongside Seba, I would love to see them in a 4-3-3 hmm. and get that one defensive midfielder. And maybe it is Richie Ryan if he, if he plays another year. Can he control the midfield on his own underneath with two attacking mids? I would love to see that because now you're running downhill the entire way where Josue, Salgado, Kisavetta, Seba, all of that running at you mm -hmm. scares the living daylights out of me. Now, what will Mark <laughs> Lowry do? He said he was always going to stick in a 4-2-3-1. He was willing to change midseason. I promise you, given the offseason time that he has, he'll go get his pieces, he'll change, and they'll come back stronger. Yeah, I'm interested in that. And and if they do find that attacking right back, will they be able to, to defend as well as they did, which is a surprising wrinkle with them. They did really well defending this year. So fun, fun, fun things to look at next year. And feel free to comment on that. But I am going to transition otherwise um, to the Monarchs and what they were able to pull off this year uh, with all the things. We talked about this off air, but one of the things um, that was good about this year for them is they've always had good seasons in the USL. They just didn't get hot at the right time. I've been saying that for the last several weeks. This year they got hot at the right time and look at how well they're doing. Look at how good they look in the playoffs. Uh, what do you think about that, that for this year? It's really easy for people to look at, okay, this is the Western Conference champion in the Real Monarchs. That's the Eastern Conference champion. If you look at what they've gone through, though, positive turmoil. What does that mean? Talking to Kalen Ryden, I asked him, you guys are in a very unique situation because this is an MLS2 team. They are trying to mimic what goes on with Real Salt Lake, who plays in a 4-2-3-1. But they lose their head coach. What, what was that, in July, I believe, something like that? Early. Um, and, he, and he steps away, and Freddy Juarez comes in. Same thing happened for the Real Monarchs, where Martin Vasquez starts the year, and then Hamas and Alave come in. Hamas did the same thing last year when Mark Briggs departed. But when, you're, when your talisman Mike Pecky, the head coach for the Real Salt Lake, leaves and has been for quite some time, I'm, you're always trying to mimic big brother. Now, what do you do? Because you have an interim head coach, both of you do, hmm. and you don't know what it's going to look like. SLC stayed with a 4-2-3-1, primarily. That, that was their bread and butter. The Real Monarchs didn't follow suit, though, which I thought was the biggest key here where, okay, 4-2-3-1, what are they going to play in? You know, you get some overlapping outside backs. And doing research, it was funny to see what this team looked like and the exhibition that we're going to do in them in the final back in May when they played Phoenix compared to when they played them this time around. And not just philosophy, but players. I mean, this is a squad. I'm looking at my board right now. You've got 11, let's see, 22, 23, 24, 31. On my board alone, I've got 40 players, sorry, 41 players mm -hmm. that made appearances this year. And I promise you there was probably more. So when you account for all of those players and, and the changes in the head coaching system and the philosophy change, and you still get to the final, it's absurd. Yeah. 
but it's a credit to what this organization about is they're about winning. They're a model of consistency. Look at 2017 and 18, only a three-point difference. They want to win. They want to win trophies and be competitive and find a way to bridge the gap between their academy, the Real Monarchs, which they call their second team, though we're not supposed to say that at the USL championship level, <laughs> and then move them up into the MLS ranks. And you got that. Justin Portillo got his chance. Douglas Martinez was rewarded with that. Michael Chang might be one of the most underrated players mm. in all of the USL for what he's capable of. I would be shocked if he didn't start getting repetitions for SLC next year, or at least move into the 18 and give him a look. So tactically, what do they do differently? This is simple. Kalen Ryden, not simple, but I'll break it down. Kalen Ryden goes from center back. He moves to left back. And some people call them their center backs. I don't, and here's why. Ryden goes to left back. Conrad Pua stays at center back. Eric Holt comes to right back. Now, all three of those guys are center backs. But even Kalen Ryden said, we weren't upset that we were changing into it. We actually looked at it as an opportunity. Mm -hmm. When the head coaches changed, when they decided to move into a different tactical look, they didn't mind it because they knew that every player that was stepping into it had been in that situation before. What does that mean? Tate Schmidt was an All-American at the University of Louisville. He was a fantastic player under Ken Lola, but he was a number nine. He played as a striker. Kids <laughs> scored him like 30% of his goals. But at FC Tucson, he actually was an outside marking back. Rich Schantz of Phoenix Rising coached him. And he said going into the match, I'm really worried about him because he's a great outside marking back who I think will be that in a wingback position at the next level. Hmm. So what do you give yourself? You give yourself three center backs, but you also give yourself coverage where your wingbacks and Tate Schmidt, an offensive player who's also played marketing back, who's fulfilling both roles. Same thing out of Noah Power. Same thing out of James Moberg. So even if it breaks down and you need help, those guys can fulfill an outside back position and create four. Specifically, they make it five. That's why they are so good defensively because hmm. it's a line of three, then it's a line of two, the midfield shape is, is where they're at their best, in my opinion, because Justin Portillo playing alongside Luke Mulholland, those are your two sixes. Mulholland then steps up. So Portillo will slide in. He'll be the six, much like what Tyler Gibson does for Indy. The difference here is that Mulholland will make that 40, 50, 60-yard run down the field that you weren't getting out of Drew Connor or Kenny Walker, yeah. and he'll do it alongside Jack Blake. And, oh, by the way, now you've got two strikers. That's the biggest difference here between the Monarchs and Indy is Douglas Martinez and Michael Chang. They jumped all the way down the field instead of just having Tyler Pasha or Dane Kelly. And that's different because Martinez and Chang, you push one into the corner on the right, Moberg goes with him. Jack Blake will shift over. Luke Mulholland is next to him. Douglas Martinez will fulfill the role in the middle. But then you cannot sleep on the outside back because you've got Tate Schmidt in the wingback position trailing, making those darting runs. And that's where teams get themselves into trouble because they don't account for that last post runner. Yeah. That's similar to what you see out of Liverpool, by the way, where you get these outside backs playing these long balls. You just saw it yesterday. And when all them is moving in through the middle, you have trailing runs, but your outside backs are the ones that are always stretching the game for you. And again, if it breaks down, the back three have already moved their lineup. So even when El Paso tried to go the other way, they had five, six quote unquote defenders sitting in front of them because the attacking option broke down, but they transitioned so quickly. Yep. I love that. I don't know how many times I've seen their wing back, left wing back in miles of space, just no one there, and able to get those crosses into Martinez and even um, Chang. I think he got one in that uh, corner fi quarterfinal game um, exactly that way. Um, boy, love a lot of that. The positive, uh, ch you know, what was that? What was the term, the phrase he used? The positive changes? 
positive turmoil. Yeah, I the, liked that. The positive turmoil. Yeah. yeah. I, I got to credit Caden, Kaelin Ryden, by the way, he's the one who fed that to me. Kids, <laughs> kids a really nice individual. And that's exactly what came out of his mouth. Nice. I love that. Um, the other thing is I do want to step in here. Um, Chang will be on this show in the next, in the off season. We talked to him and I think we're going to try to get David Ochoa on here. Um, and so we're going to try to get the, all that going. We might have to do some translation on the show with Chang. So we'll see how that goes. I'm, I'm excited to get him in. Cause like you said, I think he's a talented player that I hope he does get some looks with the senior team next year. Lord knows he deserves it. Um, you know, when basically when the Monarchs stole all those players from Charleston, we thought Charleston's going to be terrible, first of all. <laughs> and then the Monarchs are going to be so good, right? <laughs> yeah, the fighting Mike Anhausers lived on. I didn't think they were going to make the playoffs this year. I, I gave I gave all my put all my eggs in the St. Louis basket. I'm still getting flack about that one. But, I was about to hey, say Anhauser's a great talent. And to be able to ro- reload with losing pieces like that, credit to him. Yeah, I was about to say you're welcome from St. Louis as a St. Louis in there. Um <laughs> Yeah, I, th- I think I think we're good, man. I, any any thoughts on the final? Let's let's. How does this matchup happen? They're they're sitting there. The coaches are studying each other. They're gonna try to figure each other out. I'm excited to see how this one plays out. Just because, you know, Eastern Conference teams play so much different than the West in most cases. So, what do you think the coaches are thinking about each other right now? They're, they're probably quite nervous, to be honest. I think the the one thing you have to realize for Indy, or excuse me, Randy, little Freudian slip. The one thing you have to realize for Louisville there is that they're theoretically matching up against three opponents in a row that all play in similar systems. Now they're not the same; they're similar. Where you get Pittsburgh, who they are five. You know, their their wingbacks were more defensive minded, and you know they they sat much deeper is that hybrid in the middle where it kind of bridges the gap between the two, whereas the Monarchs send their wingbacks a bit more. The balance will be the, the argument here for me is can Louisville account for those late runs like I talked about where if Tate Schmidt's on the left and Douglas Martinez has gone after um, Sean Tosh on the right side of the defense and, um, and Pat McMahon, who, who's then going to track the next runner-up? That uh, The speed of this team is is what concerns me for Louisville because you have a lot of guys on Louisville that can track. The problem is, is so many players from Real Monarchs are next level speed, whether it's Chang, Martinez, Blake, Schmidt, Moberg. I mean, I just named five. Mm. And even the, even the center backs, to be honest, like Kalen Ryden's not afraid of coming off that back line. That's kind of like Nebula Hackshaw where they'll stretch it. So it'll be a fun balancing act for Louisville. I think they're capable of it. I'm not necessarily sure how the Monarchs are going to fare away from home in the cold at night. You know, it's kind of a lot of things having witnessed it firsthand. That, that is another animal. When you get into Louisville land, they will be playing at Lynn stadium. We saw it last year for Phoenix. It is 7,500 plus of purple people leaders that are willing to scream <laughs> and yell and chant from the second you touch down in that plane to the moment that they blow the whistle. And it's a hard thing to counteract. I think Real Monarchs are capable of it. I would say advantage Louisville, though. Yeah. And Lynn, the cool thing about it is, you know, it's not a baseball stadium. So the fans are right there in your face compared to, you know, what it's like at the uh, where the slugger field is. So, um, yeah, it's going to be a great game. I'm glad they're playing it, Lynn. It's going to be a lot of fun. I thought I cursed the final for a bit there. A couple weeks ago, I said, well, Louisville's not going to make it. We're done with the... 
Slugger Field, but <laughs> I got worried because I thought, oh, wait, it is possible mathematically for them to host, uh, but it's at Lynn, so thank goodness there. Um, any last thoughts, Devin? You get to choose. Talk about whatever you want before we go. I would like to send a personal uh Congratulations, or I should say thank you to Louisville because I'm a big bourbon drinker, and so I'll get the <laughs> opportunity to go explore bourbon country again. Um, it probably will be with both with, with guys from both teams, though, and knowing them so well and in their PR departments. Hopefully I can hang out with them. No, you know, I think it's I think it's really, really cool to look back season and think about everything that both teams have been through because you've always gotten some sort of story out of Louisville and and you felt like wow was this year they're, they're not going to make it they're not going to get there so many injuries and, and international call-ups and everything that affected them and still they found a way it's a true testament to the message that is consistently coming out of that organization which is culture we talked about the players early on but for John Hackworth to be able to go in there have that conversation with them get hired as the head coach and come in and just tweak things. You know, when, when guys went down and they got hurt, they didn't go into the market and, mm-hmm. and th- there's nothing wrong with people that do, but they didn't go into the market looking for other players. They truly believe that the guys that are on their roster fulfill a purpose, no matter if they're in the 11, the 18, 23, what have you. And I think they really proved that to everybody because Del Piccolo going out, George Davis, the fourth, um, Luke Spencer, of course, people actually twice, they found a way international breaks with speedy and Sean Francis to put other pieces in there and still have success and got better as the year went on. You have a similar thing coming out of the monarchs where storyline wise, as an announcer, you can't really ask for more where, you know, they've given you, okay, you lose Sebo, one of the better attacking pieces in all of the USL and he leaves. And then he turns up on the other side of the field in the final. You change your system. You lose your head coach. You lose the head coach from Real Salt Lake. Like so many things here for both teams should have been they're done, they're out, they're not making it. But not only did they persevere, right now they are playing lights out. Mm-hmm. And I cannot wait to see it. I think it's going to be a brilliant matchup. And I love the changes that both managers are willing to make. And now they have 90 minutes to go prove it. Yes, they do. And we get to watch that Sunday night, November 17th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern on ESPN2 and ESPN Deportes. I am so excited, Devin. Are you, who's calling this one? I haven't asked yet. So I will have the privilege with Michael Watts. He and I are actually yes. on league contracts, so we're grateful for that. Um, he, he will be the play-by-play. I will be his, his little knight in shining armor next to him if I can get out of his shadow because he's, he's a wondrous talent. And uh, we'll call that together. We actually have another announcer, Tyler Terrence, who primarily handles play-by-play. Mm-hmm. He will be our sideline announcer this year. So he'll be, yeah. he'll be hitting the ground running with us when we land on Friday. We'll be nonstop, 100 miles an hour. And, you know, hopefully the three of us can put on a show for everybody at the national stage and, and people will enjoy it. Awesome. So Tyler Terrence was on two weeks ago, so hopefully you heard that show. But he is partnered with the man you've been listening to. I forgot to mention Three Honest Lads. Lads, it's a podcast you have to listen to. You get a lot of this. You get a lot of bickering between you and Tyler. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we we have a little fun with that. Sans, uh, sans adult waters or not, we, we always seem to incorporate some a little bit more vulgarity in there. People always joke, how do you guys get through a broadcast? Because <laughs> we do tend to open it up a bit more, but look, it's calculated. It's, it's all in good fun. And, and I think that's what this is all about. You know, this sport is something where we don't have to agree on opinions. We can share different thoughts and 
being able to navigate troubled waters with each other is, is super, super fun. And, and I think you get that out of our show. We don't always agree, but um, the most important thing is, is showcasing what this beautiful game is all about. And I think you're going to have not only your show and our show, but more importantly, you're going to have these two teams in the final doing it in, in just under a week's time. And I cannot wait. Super excited. Mm-hmm. I'm excited too. So check out Devin Kerr and uh, the Three Honest Lads. You can find them on Twitter and uh, gotta gotta listen to their podcast. Looking forward to the final, Devin. Thank you so much for filling us in on all of these things for the final and the, and the games we've already watched. Looking forward to your call on Sunday night, man. Appreciate it, bud. Beyond grateful again for the opportunity. I'm I'm one of those people who wakes up and truly feels blessed by what I get to do on a day to day basis. And your show is awesome. I can't wait to hear this episode and everyone going forward. I love what you guys do for the game. Thank you so much. Big thanks to Devin Kerr. Man, that was so much fun. So much insight from him. And, uh, you know, uh, hopefully we'll have him on next year, maybe a, a precursor to the season as well. We've got so many off-season um, podcast ideas, and so we need to start filling those in. Um, we are going to be working on our Patreon spreadsheet, and we're going to bring that up multiple times throughout the year and throughout the off-season. So we'll be filling that out. We'll be putting the results out this week for the Patreon spreadsheet. So if you're a member, Make sure you filled that out if you haven't seen our tweets online. Um, check your email or go to our Patreon site and make sure you hit that spreadsheet link. Uh, we have a lot of making up to Patreon members, so if you do want to do a show, um, make sure you give us a, a DM because all off-season we need to start making up some of those shows where you guys come on and talk about whatever the heck you want to. Uh, we owe it to you. We've not been paying enough attention to that Patreon, and we appreciate your support, and uh, we need to start getting in on that, and that's going to be my sole job here um, with the podcast in the off season, in my opinion. So look forward to that. Lots of interviews coming. Pony setting a lot of these up. It's going to be a lot of fun. So look forward to that. Um, I do want to thank before we go, thanks to our sponsor, Roughneck Scarves, the official scarf supplier of MLS, USL and US soccer. Get custom scarves for your group or team at roughneckscarves.com. Thanks everybody for listening. Talk to you soon.